Well, Jesus has just said, if we look at Matthew 20, he said, Behold, verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. So it's just a matter of days, maybe a couple of weeks before Jesus is going to be crucified. That's where his mind is. That's where his uh, his direction is. Thinking about his suffering and his death. But a couple of his disciples, we'll see today, are looking forward to something else. And it's not to their credit. Our passages today are from Matthew 20, 20 to 28, and Mark 10, 35 to 45. Let's start by reading Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And next, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 34 uh, to 45. Sorry, 35 to 45. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, we have a a few points this morning. First of all, we have the request. The request, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. And then Mark 10, 35-37. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand 
and one on your left in your glory. Now we see here in Matthew a mention of the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now you might ask yourself, what is she doing here in this passage? Now we've talked about where Jesus is now. It's on the way to Passover. Now Zebedee and his family live up in the Sea of Galilee area. And so she's down now near Jerusalem, some miles away, quite a, quite a long distance away in those days. Well, she's there, we expect, as part of the, the group that's traveling with Jesus and others, pilgrims on their way to celebrate the Passover. Now, the obvious difference in these two passages is what? What's that? Exactly, yeah. So on the left side in Matthew, we see a mention of the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In, in Mark, we don't see the mother at all. She's not in the story. Some have said this just shows a contradiction, but it doesn't necessarily mean so. It's just that Matthew gives us more detail than, than Mark does. And we see that this mother is with her sons at the time. And when Jesus responds later, he's talking to James and John. So while the mother of the sons of Zebedee makes this request, and Jesus responds to her. After she makes the request, Jesus doesn't address her directly. He's addressing uh, James and John in particular, because he asks them, are you able to drink this cup? Now, having mentioned the mother of the sons of Zebedee, we might ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about this woman? Does it say any more about her? Well, we can do a little bit of detective work here to see who this woman is. Now, if we go a little bit later and look at the women who are by the cross, we see in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So there she is again. No name given in this passage. Mark 15, verse 40, says there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and Salome, there's a woman named Salome, and then John 19.25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So if we combine these lists, we see possibly four, at least four women here, and maybe more. So we have Jesus' mother Mary here mentioned, of course, from the Gospel of John. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all three Gospels, so that... Uh, takes care of, of the mention of her. Then we have in Matthew, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, as well as in Mark, Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. And Joseph and Joseph are the same name, just different ways of spelling them. So that seems to be the same woman here. And now the question is, this Mary, the mother of James, and the less, and Joseph, we also have in John, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So it may be that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Can't say for sure, but it kind of makes sense with the names Mary there. That leaves one last woman. We have the mother of the sons of Zebedee and Salome. And then we also have his, that's Jesus' mother's sister. And we can't say 100%, but it may be then that combining these accounts, the mother of the sons of Zebedee may have been named Salome. And this woman also may have been the sister of Jesus' mother Mary, which would make... Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who? Jesus, what? His aunt. And some of you may have 
had some aunts who were fairly bold and <laughs> making requests of you. And if Salome, this woman uh, who's the mother of the son of Zebedee, was Jesus' aunt, that may explain why she feels like she can go to Jesus with this kind of a request. And we can't say for sure whether this original ambition, who, who asked for this request? Was it the mother's idea? Or did James and John have the idea and say, hey mom, can you go tell cousin Jesus what we want? You can see it either way, can't you? Either the mother's ambitious, we, we've all run across ambitious mothers before for their kids, Maybe we've had some ourselves. Or we've had kids who have wanted something and asked the mother to do it on their behalf. In any case, the mother does make this request along with James and John. And we have this bold request made in Mark. Imagine this. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Any of you ever do that to your parents or have your kids do that to you as a parent? Mom, Dad, do whatever we ask, okay? What are you going to say? <laughs> what is it you want? You're not going to give the kids a blank check. And Jesus is wise enough here to say, uh, what do you want me to do for you? In Matthew it says, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. And Mark says, uh, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So the difference here is that in your kingdom is the request to sit in your kingdom, and then in Mark it is to be there in your glory. And of course, they are referring to the same thing. Remember back, we've read this many times, we read it last week, Daniel 7, we have the vision there of the Son of Man. And I'll, let me read that again and, and listen carefully to what it says here. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, of course, and it was presented before him. And to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we have glory and a kingdom. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his glorious throne, or the throne of his glory. Again, we have the, the throne representing kingdom, and, the, and then the glory associated with that kingdom. Even going back a little bit to Matthew 15, 27 and 28, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So again, a link between the glory in which the Son of Man will come and then his kingdom as he sets it up. But even nearer in the past, if we go back just a bit in Matthew 19, verse 18, Jesus has said, and we studied this a few weeks ago, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, or the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So in the not-too-distant past, Jesus has talked about coming in the glory of his kingdom, and he will have his own throne, and around him will be the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this idea of sitting on Jesus' right or left hand on thrones by Jesus' throne 
didn't come out of nowhere. I think it had its uh, start, at least, just a chapter earlier, when Jesus talked about the thrones that the disciples will sit upon uh, in Jesus' kingdom. And it makes you wonder that whether maybe James and John, as they're talking to Jesus, they've heard this promise about sitting on the thrones, and their mother's in this group with them, and they say, hey, Mom, guess what Jesus just told us? He said that when he comes in his kingdom, on the throne of his glory, we are going to have thrones with him as well. And either the mother or the the son said, well, somebody's got to sit on his left and right hand. Why can't it be you guys? And this idea of being on the right and left hand, of course, is the place of honor to be closest to the king. The right hand is the highest honor. Left hand is still pretty good, isn't it? But it sounds like James and John aren't too picky about who gets what. As long as one of them gets left, one gets right, they'll be able to to deal with that either way. And this this is quite an ambition, isn't it? It's not enough to just be on a throne near Jesus, but they want to be next to Jesus' throne. Why be one of just twelve when you can be one of two? Or and you can commend their faith, as you see, when you come in your kingdom commend their faith in believing in Jesus coming reign as king, but not their desire in using Jesus' promise to them for personal advancement. Well, so that's the request, to sit on Jesus' left and right hand when he comes in his kingdom. We have now the response. This is Jesus' response, Matthew 20, verses 22 and 23. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And then Mark ten thirty-eight to 40 Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus starts out by saying to them, You do not know what you are asking. That is, this request is more complicated and more painful than just putting a nameplate on a chair. Or you might say, at a banquet, you have cards as to who sits where, and you might look around and say, who's who's at the, the head table? Who's sitting closest to the important people? Well, you might have a picture here at Jesus' throne, and then you have nameplates, James and John on the thrones in the left and right hand. But it's, it's not just that. It's not just the place of honor. There's something else. Matthew Henry says this, We know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and ask not for grace to bear the cross in our way to it. And Martin Luther says something similar. The flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified, exalted before it is abased. So Jesus is warning them that it's not just uh, the glory that you seek that will, that will come in, in sort of gaining that throne, but there's suffering involved. Matthew and Mark both mention the cup, and Mark additionally mentions baptism. And of course, Jesus is not speaking here of a literal cup of something or a a water baptism. If you look back at the Old Testament, 
particular, you see this term cup used in various ways, sometimes good connotations. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. And it's not just the cup, but what's in the cup. It's a blessing that's part of that cup. Uh, Psalm 23, 5, I think you know this well. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. What comes next? My cup overflows. So the idea there is that you have this this wine, presumably some some wonderful drink that is overflowing. There's so much bounty in God's goodness to us that you fill it to the brim and it overflows and you don't even care about the waste because there's so much to enjoy. But this idea of a cup also has a connotation of judgment. It depends on what's in the cup, right? If you have a cup of some drink you really love, that's a great to have it overflowing. If it's full of poison, that's something else entirely. So Psalm 11.6 says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So imagine uh, a cup full of fire and brimstone and burning wind. You wouldn't eagerly drink from that, but that God will make them drink that. Isaiah 51.17 says, Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. So here we have God giving them a cup of his anger, and you have to drink it. Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16 says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So we have this cup of judgment that comes upon those who are disobeying the Lord. We also say, see later, you know this, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the garden, Jesus says something like this. He, he falls on his face and prays, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then John eighteen eleven, Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword back into a sheath after he's cut off the ear of the, the slave of the high priest. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So there's a cup of something given to Jesus, and in this context, it's, it's a cup of suffering. It's a cup of God's judgment, even as God poured wrath upon the nations figuratively through a cup. In the Old Testament, he's going to pour his judgment out upon his own son on the cross. That's the cup that Jesus has. Uh, later on in Revelation 16, 19, it says, Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So again, this idea of the cup being uh, a description, a picture of God pouring wrath out upon somebody as, as they drink this wrath, and it it uh, comes into their system. So there, there's the cup. Again, Mark mentions baptism in a figurative sense, and Jesus has said earlier in Luke twelve fifty, but I have a baptism to undergo, that is, to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now, I think most of you have been baptized. Any of you were distressed until your baptism was accomplished? Probably not. It might have been a little bit scary. It might have been a little cold if you were baptized, maybe in the sound. Um, maybe hard to give your testimony in front of a group of people. But Jesus is not talking here about a water baptism. That's not distressing to him. It's not distressing to, to drink something. But it is distressing 
as he looks ahead to the baptism of judgment that he will undergo as he's immersed into the wrath of God as he's hanging on the cross. So different picture, isn't it? You have the cup uh, in, ingesting, eating, drinking something. Baptism being put into something, a, a liquid. In either case, the, the judgment, the suffering that Jesus has is, is inside him, it's outside him, it's all around him as he suffers for our sake on the cross. So drinking the cup, here in this case, is drinking all that God has for you, whether it's good or bad, that just as baptism means being fully immersed into something. So Jesus here, as he responds to James and John and, and their mother, he's saying the way to heaven is a way of suffering. Are, are you sure you can handle that? you sure that's what you want? Are you able? And they say immediately, we are able. And we don't know if they really understood the importance of the question. When Jesus says, are you able to do something, your reaction is likely to be, sure, bring it on. I can, I can handle all this. It may have just been bravado, like later on, when Jesus had said that you're going to fall away from me. Peter says, I will never do that. Matthew 26, 35, Peter says to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And we know what happened after that. But it also says, all the disciples said the same thing too. So Peter was maybe most vocal in his denials that he would deny Christ. But the other disciples said, oh, no, Jesus, no problem. We we are able to stick with you, whatever happens. And whether they understood this statement or not, the the full import of drinking the cup and being baptized with this baptism, they did suffer as as followers of Christ. These prophecies were fulfilled in them. Remember that James was the first apostle martyred by Herod. In Acts 12, it says, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And as far as we know, John didn't die a martyr's death, but we see him receiving his share of suffering, even earlier in the book of Acts. He's, he's beaten, he's jailed for, for preaching the gospel. And towards the end of a long life, he refers to himself in Revelation 1-9 as John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. So he, he knows tribulation, he's known it for many years. And it, he continues that I was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's in exile on this, this small island near Ephesus because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So both uh, James, in a short life after, uh, after this time, and John, in a long life, suffered for the sake of Christ on their way to the thrones that Jesus had promised them. Well, having said all that about the suffering that they will endure, Jesus concludes, though, by saying, whatever your ability to drink the cup and be baptized, the request is not in Jesus' power to give. The seating arrangements in his kingdom are determined by someone else, and that someone is the Father. Jesus says, it's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus, of course, has a role in salvation history. He has He's the king in his kingdom, but the Father has a role, too, and Jesus will not usurp that role. I could list many verses, but just listen to John 17 too. 
Jesus here is praying before his crucifixion. He says, even as you, that is the Father, even as the Father gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. And Jesus often refers to the people he's going to redeem as those whom the Father has given to him. So in a sense, Jesus didn't choose us. The Son didn't choose us. The Father chose us to give to his Son, to be fully theological in terms of the Trinitarian nature of the the salvation that we get through Jesus Christ. And then the, the place cards in the kingdom of heaven, those are arranged by God the Father. He's the one who sets those, not the Son. Well, what's their reaction to these, these statements by Jesus? Fairly simply, Matthew 20, verse 24, hearing this, the ten, that is the other uh, of the, the twelve disciples, became indignant with the two brothers. In Mark 10, 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now, we could ask ourselves, in what way were they indignant? Were they offended that the brothers would make such a request? How dare they do something so selfish? It's possible, not likely, knowing the disciples as we do. They aren't uh, indignant at the pride of James and John in this case. In fact, Jesus' rebuke in the next verses shows that it wasn't so much righteous indignation. I don't know about you, but my brothers and I would play a game. didn't really have a name, but you might call it something like, I asked first, or I called it. So it wasn't really a game. It was a deadly serious sort of thing we'd do. So when it came time maybe to go someplace, and one of us brothers would say, I get the front seat. And whoever calls it first is the one who gets it, right? That's, that's the rules of the game. And then the others who didn't ask first have to moan and gripe and say, that's not fair. Um, but I called it. I win. I can sit in front. And there are other things, too. Whoever calls it first gets it first. Not one of my parents' favorite games that we played. but It was pretty contentious, but that's how the disciples were, weren't they? They were many times like little children, as we are. I think that's probably why they were so upset in this case. They wish they had thought of it first. They wish they had asked first. Peter, Andrew, all the others saying, boy, if I'd asked Jesus first, I could have been next to him in the kingdom. Well, Jesus then has a rebuke for these ten and plus two. In Matthew 20, 25, 28 says, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then Mark 10, 42-45, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You notice here both accounts say Jesus called into himself, maybe trying to have a, a sort of more private huddle uh, to talk about this situation. There are similar words in Luke 22, uh, uh, though Luke's uh, words in this matter are, are placed 
during the time of the Last Supper. And we don't know whether it was a different occasion or whether Luke maybe arranged things differently for thematic reasons. In any case, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Luke 22, verses 24 to 27, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have the authority to uh, over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? It is not, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So again, this might have been a different occasion. Certainly there are more than one there's more than one occasion where the disciples were arguing as to who was the greatest, who wanted the, the highest position. Jesus may have just repeated himself here, even just a few days later. In any case, Jesus rebukes them for their their pride. Here he mentions the Gentiles. And you might remember a few times in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus wants to gently or not so gently prod uh, the Jews to do the right thing, he sometimes mentions Gentiles. Matthew 5:47 If you only greet only your brothers what more are you doing than others do not even the gentiles do the same Matthew 6:7 When you are praying do not use meaningless repetition as the gentiles do for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words and then Matthew 6:31-32 Do not worry then saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't act like Gentiles. You Jews that have contempt for the Gentiles for the way they live, for the way they worship, well, when you act in certain ways, you're acting like them. And he does something similar here in this rebuke. And these are tough words to hear. You're acting like Gentiles. Stop it. These Gentiles like to climb over each other on the way to the top, and once they get there, they want to stay there. But, Jesus says, it is not this way among you. Instead, if you want to outdo each other, outdo each other in humility. He uses the term here, servant and slave, and I think they're used synonymously here. The Greek word uh, translated servant here is the word from which we get deacon, and then we have the word slave, we are Christ's slave, he says elsewhere, and in a similar way, we are to be slaves to all Christ's people. As we even see here in, in Mark, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And not in the sense of being abused, like uh, slaves were in the American South, for example, but we're slaves in the sense that we don't consider our life our own. Our life belongs to someone else. It belongs to Christ, and because it belongs to Christ, it also belongs to all his people. We're not acting in a way that we want everything for ourselves. So instead of acting like Gentile lords by trying to attain the top, be like the Lord Jesus Christ, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Notice before we move on, this word even, even the Son of Man, that is, of all men, Jesus had the most right to demand absolute service, but he came as a servant. Jesus could have, at any moment in his earthly ministry, rightfully, in a sense, because of his position, demanded that all men worship him, but he came in his first coming to be a servant. We see this so many places in the Gospels, but listen to John 13, 
13 and 14. This is at the Last Supper, and he's washed their feet, which is was the job of a slave. In those days, people wore sandals, as you know, and their feet were very dusty. Um, it would not be a job that most people would want to, to wash other people's feet, but it was necessary as you're lying down, reclining at a table, to have people's feet clean, because you might be near somebody's feet as you're eating. Well, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And not just literally washing feet, but serving people in the, the, the what people might consider the lowest acts of service you could even give. The most difficult, the, the most, you might say, disgusting, the most revolting things. If Jesus could do that, we should do it as well as those who are beneath Jesus, who are lower than Jesus. Second Corinthians 8-9, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus perhaps could have stayed rich in heaven, but because he loved us, he came down and became poor, that we might through his poverty become rich. And so Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. It also says here, he came to give his life a ransom for many. So he didn't just come to serve by healing people and preaching and washing feet and being a nice guy. His service showed itself in the most profound way, and this was the goal of his service, was to give his life, to give his life as a ransom. Remember that his life wasn't taken from him He wasn't swept up in the events beyond his control only to have his life taken by the Romans. He gave it. He gave his life a ransom for many. Uh, John 10, 17 and 18 says, For this reason my Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus came to die. He came to serve by dying, to give his life a ransom for many. And you'll recall that just a few verses earlier, that he said he would suffer and die, but he didn't just die as any other man would die, and now he describes further the purpose of his death to be a ransom for many. And this term ransom can have a couple of meanings. It can be a a deliverance from something, or it could be a purchase price paid. In particular, you might have a a slave that you wanted to release from bondage. You would pay the purchase price to release them from that bondage, and that would make them a free man. And so this ransom is given on behalf of someone else. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So on behalf of the sheep. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He redeemed, the word ransom, redeemed, have the same idea. He redeemed all of his people by giving himself, giving his life for the sheep. We saw this in Hebrews just a few weeks ago, in Tom's sermon, Hebrews 9.12. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, 
he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, redemption, ransom, same idea. By giving his own blood, by dying for his people, he entered the holy place and obtained eternal redemption. Turn to uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This is a well-known passage, but it's so pertinent for our study this morning. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he did, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was humble to the point of death on a cross, and he did this for our sakes. And of course, also for the Father's sake, as he obeyed God the Father and redeemed for himself a people for his own possession. Looking at the the death of Christ for the sake of others, we can also be reminded of Isaiah 53, even going back in the Old Testament, some 700 years before Christ came. Remember, we saw last time that all things which are written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, will be accomplished. Jesus gave himself as a ransom, not only to save us, but also to fulfill the words of the prophets. And I mentioned last time Isaiah 52 and 53, and let's just read through this. I know it's a fairly lengthy passage, but it's so pertinent. And and notice here I've underlined places where it talks about how he gave himself on behalf of someone else. So this one who is suffering in this passage is not suffering for his own sins, for his own sake, but suffering for others. Notice how it starts here. Behold, my servant will prosper. So even the, the father is talking about someone who is his servant. So Jesus Christ, he, he in a sense served us by his death, didn't he? But he's also a servant of the father because he's doing the father's will. The father uh, commanded him and he willingly did what the father told him. So Isaiah 53, starting, or 52, verse 13 and then through the end of chapter 53. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This sounds like Jesus' elevation to his throne. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see... And what they had not heard, they will understand. Then chapter 53 begins this way. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And then he, the first 
portion of this, this, his accomplishments on behalf of someone else. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That whole verse there talking about how Jesus uh, received all these these afflictions for the sake of someone else, for our transgressions, for our iniquities, so that uh, we could be healed by his scourging. Continuing, uh, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. So we were due a stroke from God for our transgressions, but he was cut off for the transgressions of someone else. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The idea of guilt offering is a death of one creature on behalf of another. The, The bulls, the sheep, the goats had to die as an offering on behalf of someone else. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. He bears sins, justifies the many. Therefore, verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and it interceded for the transgressors. So all that we can see in just Jesus' brief statement. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Well, let's just end with a a few applications. Let me any questions so far? I know we're running short on time. Just a few applications. First of all, obviously, I think as we look at who Christ is and what he did for us is to be humble. Earlier in Philippians 2, we read earlier, Paul says, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says, have this attitude in yourself, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about Jesus' humility. So when we are looking for the example of humility, we look at Jesus Christ himself. So first, be humble. Next, be wary. That is, be wary of yourself. If these disciples, James and John and the other twelve, who lived with Jesus day after day, they heard him speak often of humility, and even more, they saw his servant attitude continuously, if these men can miss a central part of Jesus' message, 
we need to regularly evaluate ourselves to see if we're truly humble. We can think that we're humble, but pride can surprise us and trip us up. Have you ever thought that you're doing pretty well in your humility and then you get truly humbled? You see some pride and you have to repent of that pride. It happens more than we care to admit. Next, uh, be prepared. Be prepared. And that is be prepared for suffering. That may not be our lot to, to die as Jesus and James did or to live in exile as John did, but we mustn't let fear of suffering keep us from following Christ as closely as we ought. And we do have to bear a cross as those who follow Christ before we get the crown. And next, we can be serving. This is part of being humble. John 13, even the lowest task as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Are we willing to do the the low things? It's easy to do the, the flashy things, the things that will get you lots of applause or accolades, but are we willing to do the lowest thing that nobody would even think to uh, or would want to do and no one will recognize you for. And next, we are to be righteous. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you have been bought with a price. There's the ransom idea again. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So Jesus didn't save us to live the same lives we lived before Christ. He saved us to live holy lives. You could also look at 1 Peter 1. We're out of time, but maybe write that down. 1 Peter 1, 14-19 talks about, Be holy, for I am holy. And then finally, as we look at Christ and what he did for us, be loving, be loving. 1 John three sixteen says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we see Jesus laying down his life for us. We lay down our lives for those that Christ has bought with his blood. Let's close in prayer. Father, these are amazing things to think about the, the love of Christ for us. All he suffered for us and willingly went to the cross for our sakes. And we can never repay those things. But help us as we see his example to be humble to set aside our pride, to be willing to suffer for your sake, to, to love and to, to labor, even to, to be a slave to all. Because it's in doing so that we most reflect who Jesus is. Help us to get rid of this ambitious pride, to replace it with the, the humility of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.